right, here we go. Nice and quiet. Sound speeds, camera rolling. Holding for sound. Last looks. Calling for last looks. And set and action. I need to swap batteries. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, the podcast about the struggle about being an independent filmmaker. I am Liz Banachel. I am Ulrich Brussel. This week, we have writer, producer, and director Rashad Ernesto Green on the show to talk about his rise as a director, moving into directing television, and the making of his latest film, Premature, which premiered at Sundance and is now out on Hulu and to rent on Amazon. And that little voice inside said, it doesn't matter how much money you make, if you don't love what you do, you're not going to be happy. So you might as well risk it all and pursue what it is that you want to do. Yeah, this is a really fun conversation. It was, I think it was a longer one, too, because he had just thought a lot of great things to say. And I think it's really useful for someone to understand like what you have to do and how much work goes in to going from directing an indie to like getting hired to direct on television, which it's not like you just snap your fingers. <laughs> Listen to me. Television is not the truth. We'll tell you anything you want to hear. We lie like hell. Tenet pushed back its dates to July 31st, and Wonder Woman pushed back its dates to October. And this just happened like two days ago, I think. Yeah, this just happened. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm really curious about this because a whole bunch of dates jumped around, including movies like that were going to come out on the 1st of July that moved to July 17th. So I'm kind of confused a little bit by it because I'm like, well, wait, are some theaters going to be open on July 17th? So like the smaller indie films are like, sure, like we'll get like, you know, the same amount of theaters we, we would have normally. Like, let's just do it then. Or are they all being super optimistic still, thinking that July 17th? And then why would Tenet only go back two weeks, like, versus, like, a month just to be more safe? Like, I don't, I don't get it. I mean, I, I legitimately have been asking Chud questions, and he has been pulling the NDA card on me, so he <laughs> won't tell me anything. Um, I think... Part of it could be wanting to be the opening film. That's like a historic moment for oh, right. the history of cinema. Is like you are opening um, the the country with your film. Um, so I wonder if it's just like they just are trying to get on the edge of what's acceptable and what will be um, popular in terms of ticket selling. I think it's interesting also is that they decided. Um, Warner Brothers decided to release uh, Inception, re-release Inception on the original date of um, Tenet's opening as like an anniversary release. So it's like, are they testing the waters or did they already reserve that time slot and they had to figure out the money of making that reservation with the exhibitors? I have no idea why, but um, I think it's interesting. They're they're turning into a Nolan fest all July. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I, I bet I bet it's got to be that, that they made reservations on the, the 17th and they couldn't get out of them. So they're going to put something there to like at least, you know, make their money in the theaters that are open on the 17th, you know, um, yeah. assuming any theater is open on the 17th. Um, although I did get word. I saw I saw some article. I don't know if it's true that like theaters are able to open again soon. Maybe. I don't know. But uh, my theater still is closed. So I, I don't know. They didn't put that um, sign up for you yet. Uh, no, you you, you no, were saying that you liked. I was didn't. listening to our old episode. <laughs> you were yeah. I say it every week, apparently. <laughs> but um, but yes, uh, no. I walked by there yesterday, and it's uh, still closed. Same 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 sign. I was hoping they would have an update. Like, 
theater reopening on this date, but no, nothing like that. Well, I was thinking about the idea of going to the movies, and I, I was thinking about the content that I've been watching and how I will really embrace a movie when I watch it in quarantine. Like, I saw this movie last night that is known to be one of the absolute worst movies of all time, and oh I flipping loved it. What, <laughs> like what, what movie? You gotta tell me. It's called Dead Heat. It's with Treat Williams and Joe Piscopo. Oh! oh. <laughs> yeah, um... So that's not the one that I that I thought it was. Dead Heat. So what's what's that one about? It's um if I if I say what it's about, it like literally ruins a plot point that happens twenty oh, okay. minutes into the movie. But okay, it, fine. It, it's um it's a horror comedy uh written by Shane Black's older brother. Oh, wow, amazing. <laughs> and Treat Williams and Joe Piscopo were it's really like it's it's pretty like there's a lot of holes to this plot. Oh my but gosh. I, Oh, are you looking it, it up? No, I just have to see it now because it yeah. sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, but the reason I bring this up is I think that any movie that plays in that moment where we're going back to the movies is going to get more favorable reviews than um, a year from now. I think the oh, idea, yeah. we're going to be in the theater. We're going to be so happy we're there. We're going to be settled in. We're going to be immersed in this experience. And I think, I think whatever the film is, is going to benefit. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I haven't seen Dead Heat, but I've seen this poster before, and it's pretty amazing. <laughs> a few weeks ago, we talked about the Egyptian theater being bought by Netflix. And I just read an update today that um, that actually made me feel like Netflix was the good guy in this scenario. Turns out, yeah, the Egyptian actually needed a lot of improvements and upkeep and um, was not doing so well financially. And it actually sounds like Netflix is the superhero that saved the day and allowed for artistic freedom for the programmers to still figure out the weekend. So you were right. Optimistic Ulrich wins again. And it wasn't Netflix capitalizing on this. I mean, they're probably still doing it for awards runs, but I think they're also doing it to preserve the theater. Yeah, it's probably both, you know, it's like to be be come in and like, you know, save this wonderful thing, but also get to have, uh, you know, some control in the market, which, you know, will, will, will be really interesting to see if Amazon follows suit, you know, if they yeah. restore some old theater or something in some city somewhere, maybe Los Angeles, maybe New York. How about Oakland? How about that? That'd be great. <laughs> we have some old theaters that have been turned into nothing that could go back to being theaters again. That'd be pretty yeah. nice. Um, anyways, uh, one last thing I wanted to say about this whole tenant thing was they went back to the 31st, but apparently, um, Mulan's still scheduled for the 24th of July. So uh-huh. if that sticks, then they'll be the one to open up, um, after the pandemic. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm just really sad. Like, I don't, I like, there's no word on, you know, uh, Black Widow when that movie is supposed to come out in theaters. I was supposed to come out in April. Like, uh-huh. all our summer releases, like, a lot of them just got pushed a whole year. Like, including, like, the Fast and Furious franchise uh, release, whatever that was going to be, nine, I guess. Um, and so, I don't know. I just kind of want these movies to come out. <laughs> yeah. And, and just... for you properly, it sounds like. Yeah, for me, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I wish they would come out... Well, yeah, in the theater is what I mean. I wish they would all come out in the fall. Like, imagine if all the movies that were going to come out across the summer all came out in October and November, and it was just like an overload of movies. Like, how great would that be for the viewer? <laughs> Probably not so good for the like production companies, but great for us. You know? <laughs> and that's what's most important. My breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words. You've got mail. 
So this week we have a question from a listener, John Beckham. Um, John writes, Hey, what do you think of having Alark and Liz interviewed as the guests are on separate episodes? Don't know if that's in the cards. Uh, if it is, I'd like to throw my name in to do the interviewing. I'm a listener and a documentary film director who's interviewed lots of people, and my last doc just came out on Showtime. Woo! Well, what? Showtime represent! Yeah, yeah. Even if it's not me doing it, I think it'd be great to know a little bit more about them, especially because they're actually making movies and not just bystanders. So, what do you think about that, Liz? I mean, when... Anyone asks to interview me, I say yes, because I am very <laughs> self-involved and love to talk about myself. My niece right. was like, can I interview? I'm like, yes, please interview me. Let me talk to you for two hours about sure. myself. Um, so, yes, I think it would be fun. I don't know if it would benefit our audience, but um, I would do it. Would you feel like I guess when we do the interviews with other filmmakers, I always think that we kind of share a little bit about ourselves. But do you feel like you talk about yourself on the podcast already? I think I talk about myself too much sometimes in interviews um, <laughs> where like a really awesome director will be talking about their movie or whatever. And then I'll like, you know, interject something about my experience. And I'm like, why did you do that? You because have no right to do that. No, you should. You, we're not just like, yeah, we're not just like um, boards where people bounce things off of us. It should be engaging right. and we should be sharing too. Right, right, so right, right. I think it's good when you do that. So I haven't really been interviewed properly on the show in probably a hundred plus, more like 150 episodes. I think inter Timothy interviewed me uh, about one of my movies a long time ago. And then I've interviewed you on the podcast. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Twice, I think. So, you know, they could, you could, people can find the Liz interviews, um, you know, on the show if they look. But uh, I don't know. I, I do think it's an interesting idea. I think it would be interesting to do it around like a certain topic. Um, so if like, you know, you're going into production on, um, lady parts, like having somebody like a producer interview you about you, your, your like pre-production and your, your prep for the movie, like that mm. could be really interesting. Like to have like that kind of voice, like me and this producer on like kind of flipping the switch, like on you and having it be like your, uh, episode, but like interviewed by, by, by us two, whoever they, that other person would be, um, and likewise for me, like some like our listener or listener slash friend of the show, Andrew Schrader, recently emailed me asking about uh, an update to the alternate, like a post-production update episode oh. for the show. And then I was like, well, like maybe that's not something that really feels like we should do anymore because we have all these amazing guests. But what if we got like a really great editor to come on and interview me about me editing my own movie and like yeah. what that was like and like you and this other editor would like do uh, the interviewing, you know, and like flip it a little bit, you know, we're talking John out of a job, though. Like, it sounds like John <laughs> wants to do this. I think it, I think I would encourage John and me to interview you. I think oh, that yeah. makes the most amount of sense because, yeah, there's two episodes on me. Also, literally, like there's like 45 million podcasts where I've begged them to bring me on. So I've said the same answers 30,000 times. <laughs> um, but I would be more interested in hearing what you have to say, Ulrich. And I think we should respond to John and say, let's do it. But in regards to Ulrich and maybe the alternate. All right. Interesting. Interesting. Um, and so then uh, the story continues. I wrote back uh, with to John and we went back and forth a little bit. And I asked him if we could read this email on the show. And he said yes, but only if we answered his question that he asked in his iTunes review, which <laughs> we will also read. Um, 
So do you want to take this, uh, Liz? Sure. Extremely valuable. Five stars by Jay Beckham. Uh, as a filmmaker who got started later in life, I have to cram as much learning into whatever free time I have whenever possible. Outside of YouTube, my holy trinity has been Masterclass, Off Camera with Sam Jones, and last but certainly not least, Making Movies is Hard. Ulrich asks great, great questions from his guests, especially that what does it mean deeper dive questions that are so valuable at really understanding a filmmaking process. Truly a master interviewer. Liz has increased the production value and professionalism, <laughs> which was a little shot in the arm that the show needed, taking it from four to five stars. On top of them being solid podcast runners, they make movies too and share their experiences from development to marketing. Uh, thank you for, did I miss them? Yeah. Thank you for helping better the craft. Side question, uh, that theatrical, <laughs> I, I remember this question, that theatrical orchestral little intro music, it was so dope. What happened to it? My guess is that you didn't own it and moved it aside after giving the podcast a facelift. If not, and you did own it, what are you doing? It was amazing. Um, I don't know the answer to this question. (laughs) Ulrich, what happened to the music? So, um, yeah, that music, I believe, is owned by Timothy. It was um, made for his production company by a composer years ago. Um, And so it's just something that he had on one of his hard drives. And uh, we just thought it really fit for the show. He sent me it as a sample and maybe a couple other options. And we just decided that that one was really perfect for this. Um, And then the reason why we don't have it anymore, well, when we moved over to work with our producers over at Bloodstream, Um, We just said, hey, go nuts. Like, whatever you guys want to do, we're open. New intro, new whatever. And this is kind of what we came up with. Um, And we sort of planned out this, the intro that we have sort of together. Um, But, uh, but yeah, we didn't really think there was room for that music anymore. And and to be perfectly honest, like, I kind of felt like we were a little stale with that music just starting the show yeah. and then taking so long to get to our voices because like most other podcasts will like have way less music before someone starts talking and then the music will run underneath um, voices, you know? And uh, I just thought that it was time for a change um, after, you know, four, four and a half years or whatever. Um, but yeah, I'm not opposed to bringing it back or introducing it into the show somehow, but I just, I'm not exactly sure how it fits i don't know what do you what about you liz do you think that that music can come back in any way i also i'm now thinking back of the music and i'm like do a little dance yeah it was catchy it was slow but catchy um but i like our new intro more i wish we had more voices in our new intro because i can hear myself end the (laughs) intro and then i'll start the segment and i'm like that's the same voice but other than that um i like how it's faster paced and is like on set I like that they're on set sound bites. Yeah, no, I, I love our new intro. I think it's really good for the show and fits really well. And I also just think that um, it's different. Like you don't really hear that on other shows. Like that's not like a, it's, it's unique, you know, music, yeah. any music by itself opening a show is not unique. That's what everyone does. Um, so <laughs> this is a little different. Uh, but yeah, I mean, maybe we can have it be introduced in the middle, like, Maybe it's at the end, yeah, after the interview. Credits. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. There's, I'm sure there's room for it. Um, but yeah. Um, if Timothy you know, will let us, which it sounds like he will. Oh, but I'm sure he will. Timothy's such a sweetheart. Um, even though he's not a part of the show anymore, he's still a big believer and lover of the show. So if other people want to be like John Beckham, you can send us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. Or if you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or any other places that you can leave reviews for podcasts. 
We also have a Patreon page. So if you love the show and you want to support us, go over to patreon.com slash MMIH podcast. Give us a dollar, five dollars, whatever, nine dollars, because nine dollars means you get an enamel pin. Uh, then um, whatever you want to do, we'd love the support and uh, we thank you for it. Oh, this is a shout out to our brand new uh, patron, Lucas Colshaw. Okay, who, this is ridiculous. I can't I mean, believe Lucas became a patron of ours. I know. I told him that we would give him a pin anyways. I was, I was, was blaming. Like, I was like saving a pin for him. And then he was like, no, no, I want to support the show. So I'm really grateful for his support. Thank you, Lucas. And thank you for the amazing design. And we had some discussions with the Bloodstream Media people about more things to do with the wonderful design. So hopefully we'll, we'll be able to We'll be announcing things soon. Um, but lastly, last thing we talk about today is we were approached by uh, Danielle uh, Truccio to check out his brand new company, the Virtual Networking Tank, which is the first ever one-on-one network networking platform for filmmakers. And you know what he says is, imagine having a 10, 20, 30 private meetings in one single event, all from your home. Um, so this was developed by Danielle, who is a Los Angeles uh, based film and TV composer and it aims to solve the current and future issues the film industry is facing when it comes to networking. I mean, it basically promises to like, you know how you go to a party, Liz, and like you like have like, you know, 10, 20, 30, like little conversations with people and you, you know, maybe exchange cards or whatever. And then like, you know, maybe you email that person later, maybe you don't. Um, but you know what I'm talking about, right? Like yeah, this of course. general schmoozy. party schmoozy boozy thing. So what yeah. he's trying to do is like make that experience happen online um, from home. So that like you just basically get a bunch of like, you know, filmmaking folks in a virtual place together at the same time over the weekend and you just you know do it all from home from Zoom, basically. Um I don't know if you're like supposed to bring your own cocktail to this or what the deal is or if that's frowned upon, but uh, I don't know it sounds like a really interesting idea. Um, I, you know, I'm not exactly sure you know if it'll work or how what like what the response will be, um, but I think it's it's a really interesting concept. I, I basically think like if it's free, like he'll get people. If it's not free, it's gonna be tough, <laughs> and I don't think it's free. Last thing I want to say about this is the TVNT launch event will happen on Saturday and Sunday, the 27th and 28th of June. The website is www.tvnt.us, and the waiting list is already full of an incredibly amazing group of professional filmmakers. So if this sounds cool to you, you should check it out. Um, I think I'm going to be a part of this thing in some way, um, as long as it's not more than $5. (laughs) But, uh, but, uh, yeah, cause if it's 30 bucks, it's like really $30 for a zoom. Like, come on now. Like that's a little insane. What it reminds me of is what CPH docs did this year. They took their festival online and they had virtual lobbies and virtual waiting rooms so that buyers and filmmakers could meet. And I love the idea of like bringing in people who are maybe necessary, you know, either different crew members and crew positions on a film so that they could potentially collaborate but also maybe maybe they'll expand to buyers or reps and agents like the the sky's the limit for something like this a real genuine networking experience yeah i think it's aimed at everybody so it's supposed to be like producers directors um yeah buyers distributors you know crew people uh, composers whatever it's just like getting all film people together in, in a virtual space is the idea I'm Lori Craven, and 
I'm an actress. <laughs> an actress? Really? How nice for you. I'm Betsy Faye Sharon, and I'm a bitch. Let's talk about key art. The lesson that I've learned in distributing my two films is that there is a big difference between domestic key art and international key art. And this seems to be common practice, but I don't know if it's necessarily gospel. So this is just kind of an observation of the differences. When you do like a movie poster, uh, key art is really like your movie poster. It's like, what is the like emblem for your film? What is the image that's going to be the thumbnail at iTunes? What's going to be the reference that people think about? So it's mainly your, your poster image. And usually with um, domestic art, it's there's a chance to be a little bit bold and edgy. You don't necessarily have to be very clear about genre, though it helps. It helps to market your film to be clear, but there's an art to domestic poster art um, as there is for international poster art. But when you're going to an international market and you're looking to sell and pitch your film, usually they'll reduce your film to the lowest common denominator. And so that's what I mm. want to talk about is the like pitch poster for like the can marketplace is going to look in my case, um, like a 90s throwback sci-fi movie with Keanu Reeves. It's going to look like, <laughs> it's going to like be very clear what the audiences are, what the genre is, who the stars are, what the names are. Like all of those things seem to be incredibly transparent. It's not, a, it's not the time to be creative. Um, I mean, you could be creative in transparency. Now I feel like I'm insulting every international poster art designer. Uh it's the time to be super clear with your intentions and what your film is. So um, maybe we'll share it on the show notes, but I had a poster designed for the release of Speed of Life, which is just um, this like really gorgeous lightning bolt uh, imagery with very cosmic colors. It doesn't have cast faces. It doesn't have anything that really could tell you what the movie's about, but I just thought it was a beautiful image that would provoke people to check it out and be like, what is this movie? But for our pitch at the Cannes Virtual Market this year, we put together something that alluded to the sci-fi nature of the film. It is Anne Dowd's face, massive smack dab in the middle, and it um, has a font that like reads, this is a science fiction film. The advice is to not take it too personally, if that makes sense. Like you may feel a little schlocky designing art for these pitches, but what you really need is something that communicates something super quick because people are going to walk by these kiosks or glance at these images very quickly and they need to know exactly what this film is and what it, they could bring to their audiences. So you're saying for the one that's international, it should be basically more direct and like, say, the genre, get to the point of it um, and and not try to be too artistic. Is that what you're saying? I think so. Just And maybe it's not necessarily international markets versus domestic market, but I'm only doing pitches like I'm only going to a market for international rights and domestic, you know, I essentially... I didn't self-release, but I worked with like an aggregator slash distributor. The international markets are like, like we didn't go to AFM and we didn't go to, you know, whatever, you know, what is the other one? MIPCOM or whatever. Um, but we're going to Cannes and there's also various other like TIFF and, you know, Locarno or I don't know. 
so what I'm saying is like if you're going to a place where you're going to have like a kiosk or someone is pitching your film and it need they need shorthand, then your poster needs to be shorthand as well. It's funny. It's like kind of backwards than what I imagined because, um, you know, you look at like I was just looking at the Venom, um, you know, American, like domestic international posters. And uh, this might be very different on a big budget movie, but um you know, the, the domestic one has Tom Hardy and, um, you know, some of them even have all the cast on, on the front of, of the movie poster. And then you look at the international one and it's, uh, it's just the Venom, you know, character. Oh, um, that's interesting. You know, super big, super graphic, super, you know, like in all its glory, you know, like yeah. teeth, tongue, eyes, Venom. And then the American one is like either Tom Hardy's face split with Venom's face or it's like uh, Tom Hardy and Michelle Williams. Yeah. So it's Michelle Williams and then the bad guy and Tom Hardy all standing uh, next to each other with like the Golden Gate Bridge and then the rocket in the background and then Venom over them, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so it feels like the American uh, version is like make sure to sell our actors and then the national version is like make sure to sell the the character or the the graphics of the you know the, or the monster you know, the yeah. monster exactly so that's interesting but i wonder if that's wouldn't be true for a different type of movie that's not like you know a well-known comic book character like everybody knows venom so i think that's probably like the um thought process behind it yeah or else um, it's like my guess is people said do people know michelle williams you know in japan mm-hmm. are they like big fans of michelle you know like or tom hardy like we know those names they are american movie stars except for tom hardy's not american tom hardy yeah. american i don't think no, he's but no, they're well known British. in america um, and he actually has a pretty big uh you know following in like the the, the european films because he's like been in a couple big european films um but uh, but anyways, I mean, but this this was a uh, specifically, uh, I think, I'm not sure if it was a Japanese poster that I was looking at or just the international poster in general. I think it's just the international poster, and then like different countries put their, you know, their languages on it. But it depends on yeah the territory you're pitching to. Like, what do they think is going to be most intriguing to that territory? And for us, it's like, well, what we have going for us is cast, and then this weird concept of a wormhole. So let's put it front and center. What do you do for international art? Do like is that something that your uh, sales agent handles, or do you hire somebody to specifically make an international poster? Like how did how did you do it? Well, I can't talk too much about the intricacies of what I'm what I'm doing with my distributor, but basically, they um, I don't have a sales agent, but what they're doing is they're enlisting a help of someone who is a sales agent who works at Can, um, or who went to Can this year, and the idea is. This one-time situation, if they get a deal for me, then they'll take a certain percentage. But they're not acting as... I didn't sign a contract with this individual, and the distributor's becoming the go-between between me and this rep with my permission. Uh, so the distributor says, you know, we would really wanted to do some different artwork, so we'll take it out of the revenue that comes in, the expenses, as long as, you know, you tell us what is your limit in terms of a cap of expenses um, and we will we will design it for you unless you want to take it out somewhere else and I was like I don't have time to find a designer right now and you would know most of all what you think will be successful so they did it in-house what about truth what about the reality 
What about the way the old ending tested in Canoga Park? So what, what's up this week, Liz? So last week I suggested, why don't we keep on asking f- women in film why they got into film or TV or interactive or whatever it is, independent storytelling. Um, and you said that would be okay. And I was glad. So <laughs> I um, am just collecting sound bites from women in film. So we have three new people who are just weighing in on why they got into this crazy business. Hi, my name is Danita Williams Trigg. I am an actor, producer, writer, and director. I also direct my own film festival called A Night of Misfit Films here in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, The first moment that I realized that I wanted to be behind the camera is um, because I started out as uh, in front of the camera as an actor. And um, because I'm fat um, and a person of color, I was not getting roles or the only roles that I was getting cast for uh, were, you know, hookers with hearts of gold and junkies and mammy-like characters. So I decided that I wanted to start my own Um, my own production company and direct my own films to help highlight marginalized people because, um, you know, I I may be fat, I may be brown, but I am beautiful. And, um, you know, I'm someone's wife, I'm someone's um, neighbor, I'm someone's sister, I'm someone's daughter. And so that's why I got behind the camera. I guess you could say um, in this political climate, um, it's political. Hi, my name is Mitra Alavi and I live in Los Angeles. I decided to get into storytelling and film. It, it was kind of always a part of me as a kid. I loved playing make-believe and dress up and I consumed books, movies, television shows, which um, was unusual in my household. Both my parents were academic professors and TV and movies were just not their thing. But I couldn't stop and I didn't stop. When I was around 12, uh, I told my mother that I wanted to work in the movies. At the time I thought I was gonna be an actress because I grew up in Tennessee and that was the only job I understood as having in the movies. So um, she was supportive, but she said, you know, this is going to be very hard. And of course, I was 12, so I didn't understand that. I just thought I'd be able to do it. But after going to college for acting, um, I really realized that I was not good enough (laughs) to make a career in it. Like, And when I say good enough, I mean I was good, but I wasn't the best. And you really have to be the best. And even then, you can still get rejected a lot at auditions. So I became much more interested in writing. And as a capstone project for my honors college, I ended up writing, directing, editing, producing everything, my first short film. And it was terrible. It also wasn't that short. It was like 45 minutes. But that sort of sealed it for me. I had so much fun. So I went on to get my MFA in film production and directing and then moved out to LA and the rest is still going. 
Hi, I'm Paula Vaccaro. I'm a producer and a scriptwriter. And the question why I decided to go into storytelling, I was originally a journalist. I trained as a journalist, first studying communication sciences, and then I moved into um, broadcast journalism. And I worked as a journalist almost for a decade in Argentina, where I was born. At some point, I received a scholarship to do postgraduate studies, and that made me shift written journalism, which had been my, my main source of, um, of storytelling at the time, to um, audiovisual. So I moved to London, to the UK, to do a postgraduate studies on, on documentary filmmaking. And I decided to continue in that path because I realized I was more interested in shifting narratives and creating the stories than narrating the stories for more mainstream media, if you like, which were the type of places I had been working until then. Um, in 2009, I created a production company in London, and I continue to these days to produce films and to write scripts. And without further ado, let's get to our conversation with Rashad. The first thing we want to ask is how many days did you shoot? I would say it was about 18 or 19 days that we shot premature. And what was your rough budget? Oh, um, it was under $500,000. How long did you work on it from inception to release? I would say it was about three years total. We started writing in the winter of 2016 and then took most of 2017 and half of 2018 to complete it. And then we shot in the fall of 2018, premiered at Sundance 2019, and then it w we released it in February 2020 with IFC Films. And then how many people were on set? We didn't have that big a crew. You know, sometimes we uh, had folks that were swing, uh, you know, we had uh, people swing in to fill in certain positions uh, when we had big group scenes and stuff, like in the park. But like when we were doing interiors and stuff, we were probably, uh, we had uh, probably around 10 total. And then when we were doing the outside stuff, we'd maybe uh, go up to 15 or so. Uh, but then there was, then we, it, it seemed like we needed uh, more hands on deck. So we did probably get up to the 20, 20, like in the 20 to 25 range at, uh, on some days. And out of all of your projects, um, how difficult was this one by comparison? I would say that this was very, very difficult because I had some experience doing a feature before in New York and had also had a number of years in television. Uh, I knew, I guess, uh, ways around obstacles that I didn't necessarily know before. So although it was difficult and trying, I knew that there was always a way out. Wait, can you talk about one of those cheats? <laughs> I don't want to call it a cheat. That sounds like a bad thing. One of those strategies you used. Sure. So, you know, sometimes in independent filmmaking where it's not a lot of money, you are presented with limitations, uh, 
be it locations or budget or you're, you lose an actor last minute or you lose a location last minute and you have to remain flexible. And so in our case, all of those things happen. And, you know, instead of, you know, pulling the plug or stopping production, you know, we just had to remain flexible. And Zora and I, uh, who's my co-writer and I, you know, we would just ask ourselves, okay, well, all right, instead of having this scene take place on the beach in Coney Island, how about we just, uh, you know, put it on a bench in the park around the corner? Or, um, you know, um, instead of uh, having this, you know, ha having them eat in a restaurant, why don't they just eat hot dogs on the bench? Uh, you know, this kind, this kind of stuff. So we had to remain flexible in that way and call audibles days prior to shooting certain scenes. And, and, and we remained flexible, and that's exactly what we did. You know, so long as we kept the character in mind first, you know, and the story first and foremost, like that was the priority, then having the locations be flexible, you know, you can, you can place characters in different locations, but it's still the, a, a very similar scene. You know, that's what we tried to keep in mind was that the location wasn't as important as what was happening within that scene. And just so long, so long as we were able to get the, the forward progress intact of what happens in that character's journey at that point, then where it happened wasn't as important. Were you pretty attached to like some of these other scenes that were going to take place in other locations? Or was it pretty easy for you to be like, no, I understand. Like, I have to make this movie. Uh, I can put this scene at Coney Island anywhere, basically. Yeah, I would say that, you know, when you're when you're writing, you definitely fall in love with ideas that you have and, and images. But when, you know, when you're up against a wall and... You know, you're in it and you're in the thick of it and you see that if you if you continue on this track, the whole train is going to go off the tracks and you will and you'll end up with nothing. Then, you know, your 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 priority becomes saving the film and, and, and making sure that the story is intact. And so so you just have to you have to remain flexible. And, yeah, it might be hard to let certain things go. But when you're in the heat of the moment and, and the, your choice is between ending production or keeping it going you're always going to choose the keeping it going at least i at least i was i feel like you told me that you started out acting and and then you got into directing through acting can you talk to us a little bit about the origin of of writing and directing for you absolutely yeah i i fell in love with acting when i was in college uh, a man by the name of august wilson late great playwright uh, came to teach a semester uh, when i was in school and we did one of his plays on the main stage and I got cast in the play and never looked back. You know, I just, I fell in love with the process and I, the ensemble, just having, you know, having to rehearse with an ensemble, um, it was, um, it really, really spoke to me and I wound up going to NYU graduate acting school and studying my craft and I came out I don't even know if I should be dating myself, but I came out uh, in the early 2000s out, uh, out of school and entered an industry uh, that was not concerned with telling stories that were complex and showing characters that were complicated on screen when it came to brown and black characters. So 
I came into a world and I was, I was kind of disillusioned because coming from doing work by August Wilson and Shakespeare that was so rich and beautiful and coming and auditioning for you know, Law and Order and All My Children, it, it was just a, there, was a, there was a reality that hit me um, that in order to see the stories that I wanted to see on screen, I couldn't really rely on people to do that for me. I was going to have to do that for myself. So I decided only after three years of um, pounding the pavement as an actor that I would have to go back to school to study my craft in order to write and direct the stories that I wanted to see on screen. And so I did that. And I went back to NYU um, and got another degree in film. But if that material were out there, would you still be um, a writer or director? Would you, or would you be solely acting? Is acting your first and whole love or uh, have you made room for everything now? Yeah, I, I would assume if the, if the industry looked different from, it, from the way it looked when I came out of school, that my trajectory would be different. That's not to say that I would not have found directing or filmmaking eventually or writing eventually, but I don't think it would have happened at that time. You know, I think I would have, um, like you said, if it looked like it does now, I may have been much more satisfied with the uh, amount of work or the opportunities to play uh, characters that were deeper than what were presented to me at the time. So I was just looking at your IMDb really quick, and I see that Premature is on here in 2008 as a short film. And then you talked about you made another feature, and now you know Premature is your your newest feature. Um, is, is the short really connected to the feature? And if so, why did you wait so long to to make it? The short and the feature are related, but. When I when we set out to make the feature, we didn't necessarily, we weren't necessarily attempting to expand the short. Uh, that was never the intention. But when we got into the room, I guess the 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 only intention that we had was to tell a love story. You know, we asked ourselves what we felt was missing in present day black cinema, and where we both felt there was an overabundance of films that had to do with black pain and black death uh, and suffering. We wanted to you know, offer an alternative to those stories, although we understood why those stories continue to be told. We just felt like there, there wasn't necessarily the balance that we sought uh, in black cinema. So, you know, we wanted to explore a side of our lives that, yes, of course, there's, uh, obviously there's suffering and love as well, but uh, that didn't have to do, do with violence on black bodies. And that's just about, you know, two people uh, falling in love at a time in their lives uh, where they don't fully know themselves. And we thought that that was enough. And so that's where we started. And in doing so, in writing that script, themes from the short film began to infiltrate and, and, and influence our writing process. Uh, and since Zora was the star of that film, uh, she obviously was the star of this film as well. And yeah, we just, you know, we embraced 
we embrace the short film and and some of the scenes and the world and the setting and we yeah we just embrace we embraced it as as we were writing the feature is that how you financed was by showing the short even though I, it sounds like they are different obviously but um was having that in your back pocket and obviously having gun hill road and that success in your back pocket helpful or or instrumental when it came to financing i was aware that I mean, obviously the financing game is always a struggle, you know, but I was aware that after six years in television or whatever it was, that I might have perhaps a, a more difficult road to financing. I knew that we had to write the script in such a way that if every single production company that we approach were to say no, then I'd be able to green light the project myself. And so that's how we wrote the script. And when it came to the financing dance, which I didn't really have a lot of patience for, and you know, perhaps you know, there are plenty of people that, that would, have, would have waited, you know, because why risk your life savings to do something that you don't know is going to, you know, that you're gonna be able to make it back. I'm built, I guess, a little bit differently, and I, I don't have, uh, you know, a, a mortgage right now, and I don't have uh, children that I have to keep a, you know, a, a roof over their heads. And so I decided that after a few months of doing the financing dance and, and w where we heard that companies had a lot of interest, quote unquote, interest in the film, but no one lined up to, to sign a check, that I wasn't gonna. I wasn't gonna wait around, and I knew that, you know, with the Sundance dan deadline approaching, that we had to get a film in the can in order to edit it, in order to submit to the festival, and so I basically greenlighted the film myself, uh, with the help of uh, a friend of mine, Susan Kalechi Watson, who was on This Is Us. We went to grad acting together at NYU, and uh, a company called Cinereach, uh, it's a film grant organization here in New York, and I had a fellowship with them, and they were able to uh, also help um, with a couple aspects of the uh, production process. And so, yeah, with, you know, just pooling my resources, and we also, you know, lent on family and friends, and I used my apartment, and, you know, the, uh, and my records, and we just basically begged, borrowed, and steal from everyone that we knew in Harlem, and we shot in the, the, the streets around us and the parks around the corner in our apartments, on our rooftops, and, and we had a film. A couple questions out of that, like, did you do any crowdfunding at all, or did you just kind of use your, your own money and then, like, the money you got from the other, the other places to get this thing done? Yeah, I... Look, I, I, I encourage people to, to, you know, to utilize whatever resources you have available to, to you. And if crowdfunding is something you have the patience for, then go for it. Just know that you'll probably only be able to tap that avenue one time because there are, you know, um, and, and make sure that it, that it counts. Make sure that it, that's your baby and, and that's the one that you want you know, people to contribute to. Uh, otherwise, you know, if it's, you know, if you have your your dream project, you know, a couple of films away, and you can make a couple of on your own, I would say make make everything that you can on your own first, and then ask for money for the for for your dream project. Uh, for right. me, 
I just, I, I'm somebody who doesn't have a lot of patience. And, and so I was trying to just, you know, make it under a certain dollar amount so I could, uh, I didn't have to wait for a yes. You know, I could just say yes to myself and, and keep it moving, which is exactly what we did. Nice. And then uh, the other question was, did you get permits uh, when you shot or did you just kind of do it all guerrilla style? Oh, we, we got permits when we could. You know, we didn't always have uh, all the necessary permits. You know, sometimes, you know, when, when dates change, we would have permits for a street on one date. But then, you know, our location changed and dates changed. And then all of a sudden we, you know, didn't have permits for the date that we said we were going to do it. So, you know, there, uh, there, there was definitely an aspect to our shooting that was, was guerrilla, for sure. Uh, but, I, you know, we, we tried to have the necessary paperwork when we could. First of all, I just think you're the coolest. I remember just um, meeting you and just being like, this guy's got it together. And he seems to be always telling the truth when he talks, um, which is like a very rare um, personality quirk to encounter. Um, But I love when you said that you have no patience because you were like laying out um, very calmly an incredibly successful career that you've had and just a few short years and you just seem very composed about the whole thing. So I want to try to rattle your cages a little bit. Um, (laughs) So, um, I mean, you've had two features that have gotten to Sundance. So like, what does it feel like? What does it feel like to be a Sundance starling? Which I think is what you are. Oh, thank you so much. I, you know, I look at the folks at Sundance as, you know, my professional family. And, um, you know, I'm really happy that they have looked out for me all these years. And... I'm sorry. There's ambulances in the background here. I don't know if I should be waiting for them to clear, but this is it's reality. fine. <laughs> yeah. We're in it's the middle real, of the pandemic. Right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but you know, I you know that when 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 you when you make that first feature film and and it gets into Sundance, like you know, that was it was like my that was my whole world, you know, and everything that every filmmaker hopes and dreams for, you know, and. You know, you go down that route and, you know, and, 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 and as wonderful as it was, I still became a bit disillusioned with the, with, with the whole process because although it was, you know, quote unquote successful, uh, you know, I didn't become rich from the film or anything like that. And there weren't, uh, you know, a whole lot of people uh, that saw it. And of course, you know, in, in the opening weekend in New York, there was a line around the block and it was like, it was wonderful. You know, it was like I had tears in my eyes, but, you know, it didn't last forever in the theater and it didn't play on thousands of screens. You know, it made it to about 26 cities, uh, which was commendable, you know, but in the end of the day, it, you know, uh, like the phone wasn't ringing off the hook after that. And I, yes, there were doors that opened up for me in television, and I walked through them, and and I and I and I worked in television for about five to six years, and I made another film because because I had the resources in in order to do so, and I've learned a lot, worked muscles over those years in television. Um, and yeah, and, and we really lucked out in that it got to Sundance again, and again it got distributed and it got picked up, and, and that's a wonderful feeling. But 
again, it has not played, 50, you know, it didn't, it hasn't even played 50 cities, you know, and, and of course, it, you know, I can use the pandemic as an excuse, but the reality is, is that there were no stars in the film, at least no current stars, and, you know, the investment we made, and of course, you know, the, I'm crossing my fingers that, you know, we'll make it back and everything, and this is, this is all a wonderful, wonderful process, you know, and, and it's and it's and it's part of the journey of any anybody who's trying to get that story told. But it's not all peaches and cream, <laughs> right? You know, the, you know, it's not always just a gold pot at the end of the rainbow, you know. And and I'm and I'm somebody who's been absolutely blessed, and and I'm continue I'm, I continue to be blessed. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's it's hard going, you know. Of course, I you know I wish I had five films at Sundance in, in in the time that I've been making films, and not just two. But you know, well, really quick, sorry, Rashad. Um, just take us back to like after Gun Hill Road uh, plays Sundance and gets distribu- distribution, and t- tell us what happens next. So like you have like because that's the dream, right? That's like everybody listening to this who wants to be a filmmaker. They dream of getting into Sundance with their first feature, getting distribution, playing 20 cities these days. I mean, maybe it was a little bit more common back then, but now it's like that's pretty rare to get a theatrical for your first feature. So um, just talk to us what happens after that. Like, you know, you you said you were a little disillusioned, but like talk us through the steps of how you got from that film being released to like getting your first TV job. Sure. So with Gun Hill Road specifically, you know, we were with uh, a distributor who doesn't exist anymore. And uh, we're very happy that they took a chance at us uh, at Sundance. And this is a uh, 2011 Sundance. And so right after that, I think, uh, you know, uh, I don't know if it was that the, the housing bubble, something, something burst. Um, and the whole was like the whole Bernie Madoff scheme that right. happened, and the distributor lost their money, and so our distributor went bankrupt, and it became a court battle, where we had to Jeez. battle the distributor, in order to get the rights back to our our film, uh, and so although it played the cities, we weren't able to, you know, exploit it in terms of streaming outlets or DVD. Uh, until a year later after we won the court bot- battle uh, but it took that took some time and of course by the you know by the time we got it back the word of mouth probably had evaporated to some extent and you know we we released it and and it was on it was on Netflix for a while and you know uh, you were able to purchase it through through various outlets which was which was great like I said, the, the, the phone wasn't ringing off the hook, you know, so I applied to uh, certain directing initiatives at the different networks around town uh, that had uh, the directing workshops. I applied to one at NBC, ABC Disney, and I got a call from NBC. There was somebody who saw Gun Hill Road, you know, somebody who was working, I don't know if it was in the diversity department, I forget exactly what her position was, but it was Julie Ann Cromit. And she had seen uh, Gun Hell Road, and I, I, I think I, I wrote a recommendation from somebody uh, for Tribeca. Um, and that's right, it was Debbie, 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 I think it was Debbie Wolf. And she had gone through the writing program at NBC and said, hey, would you be in- interested 
in the directing program. My, my, my girl, uh, Julianne Cromit, she works at NBC and she loves your film. And so because of that little connection, Julianne, she, she sent my, my film around to a few producers um, in town, people who might respond to Gun Hill Road. And Noberto, uh, Noberta Barba, who was working on Grimm at the time, had an upbringing in the Bronx and he really responded to the film. And so he said that I could come shadow him out in Portland. And wow. so I did. I came out uh, through the NBC program uh, where they basically pay you to learn. Uh, they put you up and give you a stipend for, the, for a living. And I... I uh, got to shadow Noberto, uh, another uh, another director named Stephen DePaul, and 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 a first time director on the show as well. So, so I I got to see the whole process. I got to shadow three directors from prep through, I don't think it was post at the time, uh, but yep, yeah, uh, prep and production. And so, then Noberto took you know took me aside and said I was gonna he's he's gonna give me my first episode. Wow, and so that's awesome. That was yeah, that was back in 2013, and so by the yeah fall of 2013, I was directing my first episode of television, and it was really tough. You know, uh, you know, be, shadowing. You, you may think, like, oh, you know, I can I can do this. I I I see how it's going, and and then you're actually in the director's chair, and it's like it's a lot a lot of pressure. The episode turned out okay. And because I had done one episode of television, getting into the next directing workshop uh, proved even easier. Uh, I got into the uh, the Warner Brothers workshop. I applied, obviously I had a feature film at Sundance and also now uh, an episode of television under my belt. So I was able to skip over the, uh, like the class portion of it and I, shadowed a couple episodes on a show called Supernatural up in Vancouver and they gave me uh, my second episode of television and then once I did that and that came out that turned out well they gave me another episode of Supernatural and then uh, there was an agent at Paradigm at the time that um, you know said oh okay Rashad's able to do this fantasy realm uh, thing so then they booked me on Vampire Diaries and then Vampire Diaries turned into uh, you know something else and and all of a sudden it it snowballed into a little a little career in in television but, and how do I say this you sound less than thrilled at the success that you have had in television it's like it almost seems like it's an impediment to you in some way is that am I right am I accurate at all I'll say this that when directing television, it isn't always your baby, you know. So if you're coming to this as a writer director, where you're saying, you know, you're 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 here, you're gonna you know you're gonna get your stories told. Well, those aren't necessarily your stories. Like I, I uh, obviously will approach any script that's given to me and try to make it, you know, uh, authentic and real and and try to relate to it to it in, in any way that I can, but. You know, when you leave, when you leave that editing room, and I've always been proud of the work that I, you know, that I've that I've shot, but when you leave that editing room, you really don't have any say, whatsoever. And so, when you watch the the completed episode on t on television, 
you know, they, they didn't necessarily consult you over the, you know, what the music in that scene was like or, you know, um, the fact that they didn't need that scene or that shot. You know, you can be watching something that's completely different from, from how you edited it and they, and they didn't call you or email you or warn you that, that they weren't using something that you had intended. And also, you know, especially if you're doing a show, like, you know, when you're starting out in television, you're often coming to a show um, that's, you know, uh, uh, perhaps it's a, a little less risky for them to give you a shot, you know, so you might not be doing uh, a first, first season, you know, of a show. You might be doing the ninth season or the tenth season of a show. And when you get to ninth and tenth season of a show, often the actors don't necessarily want to be there. They're not excited about the job anymore. <laughs> right. You know, the crew, if especially if the crew has been there 10 years, let's say you have a DP that's been there for 10 years. Now you're coming in and you're like, wow, this is an opportunity and I'm going to do this with this episode. And, you you know, you're, you've got all this excitement, but they're, you know, that's job. It's just a job for them, you know, and, and they get to set. And, and oftentimes, you know, with crews on television, you know, they're looking at their watches from the second, you know, from the second that they, that they come in in the morning. You know, when is this, when is this uh, day going to be done? And, are, you know, do we have a director? Oh, goodness, he's, he's excited. That means he's going to have a lot of shots. That means we're going over. Is it, you, know, <laughs> you know, but if, you know, if they feel like, you know, they're in the hands of somebody who can blow through the day, they get very excited. Oh, man, it looks like we might have a short day. That means I'm going to call my wife and tell her that I actually might be home in time for dinner. Or we can go out to dinner. Or I can see my kids play. Or whatever it is, you know, that, they're, that they, you know, that's happening in their lives they have full lives. Like when you're, when you come into a show as a director, that's your whole life for that month. But these guys have been there already for the entire season, you know, so they're, they're tired, <laughs> you know, they're tired and they're worn out. Um, and you know, yes, you know, obviously, uh, uh, on set life is a, is a very exhausting life, but you at the end of the day get to go home. When you, when, you know, after your eight days of shooting, you get to go home and, and, and rest up. They don't, you know, they, you know, if, if your episode ends on a, uh, on a Wednesday, if your last day of production was on a Wednesday, they're back in at, you know, 8 a.m., 9 a.m., 7 a.m. sometimes for, you know, on Thursday for the next episode, you know, so it's hard for them to be excited after 10 seasons of just like grinding, you know, and, and, and they were, they're obviously, they're very appreciative for it. This keeps a roof over their heads. You know, they get to pay, you know, for gas, they have homes and cars and, and are able to put their, their kids through, through college and such. But to be excited about the work is sometimes, you know, um, you know, sometimes it's a little bit more uh, difficult when, when you've been on a show that's been around for so long. And so you encounter, you know, you're, you're basically, you know, you're a guest in someone else's home. And, and, and they, they, they seem to appreciate those who really know what they want, what they're doing, and, and, and are able to get them out of there early. Well, I'm dying to know, were you the annoying, energetic director or were you the calm, they love you, you get them out early director? You know, I've, I've been guilty of both, you know, um, I, I would say uh, more often than not, 
I'm very, very, well, I would say always, I'm always very passionate about what I do. Now, of course, I try to keep a pace during the day because well, there's always a clock to punch. So if I know that I can you know, be efficient in a scene, that's, that's always great. But I'm a perfectionist. So I'm, I'm always aiming to get, you know, get the most out of a scene. And that often means running up against the clock. And so, you know, there, there, there are a couple of ways to win over crews. You know, one is obviously getting them out early. But the other one is by renewing their passion for the work that they're doing. And if they can see that you're not throwing in the towel, if you actually care about what you're doing, if you're getting performances out of the actors, if you're, you know, taking a chance and, you know, doing something outside of standard TV coverage, if you're doing something new or interesting or cool, then there are a lot of people that will take you aside and say, man, I, I, I really like that shot, or I, 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 like, I like your approach. I like the way you are with the actors. You know, so you can win them over that way as well, even though you're not necessarily getting them home early. My first question goes back to like, when you got into the shadowing, like how long until you were on set? I would say it was, uh, how long was I up there? I don't know if it was a total of three months. But maybe it was like two and a half months that I was in Portland, and then I got um, the nod to, to do my first episode. So I, I, shadowed, I shadowed three episodes, which goes by pretty quick, you know. Um, but, you know, with prep and, and, and production, uh, yeah, I was up there for about two months, something like that. And then got a nod to do the first episode, yeah. So I've heard lots of stories of directors shadowing on, on shows, and it doesn't always end with that director getting a shot to, to direct an episode. That's so right. yeah. what I'm curious is, like, what did you do during your shadowing that um, you think helped you get that first offer? I was just very passionate and very ambitious. So I, I, you, you can't necessarily be you know, great at shadowing because you're, the best shadows are silent. Right. So you're not necessarily suggesting the director do anything different. <laughs> you know, you're, you're not influencing the production in any way. But if you have set savvy and you're not getting in people's way and when people have some downtime, you're asking the right questions, then, you know, anybody can see that when someone has initiative or when somebody's passionate about what they're what they what they're doing or or excited about learning. So like you're just respectful and like you don't get anyone's way, but you just show that you care and that you're intrigued. Like you, you're you're there because you love it, basically. That's right. That's exactly right. You know, um, and and people want to help. You know, I mean, it's a very stressful atmosphere, but when you have a you know a young person on set that that is eager to learn, you know, uh, oftentimes people are are willing to teach. Talk to us about that first episode of Grimm. I would say that it was a pretty harsh learning curve, you know, because you're you're thrown right into the fire and the worst thing you can do in television is like waste money by going over or not making your days. Um, and of course, it's my first episode, so I wanted to make it, you know, this is just like just like shooting a film, you know, I was I was very precious about everything. I had a lot of cool ideas and 
a lot of special equipment that I ordered and and if I wanted a dolly shot and we were up against the clock I didn't understand hey maybe I don't have to set up the dolly now maybe I can audible or maybe I can just put a little zoom on this you know and it'll have the same effect you know so I was it was like trial by fire so you know I was I was really precious with that first episode and it turned out you know it turned out well uh uh, in my opinion. Did you go over on any of your days um, on that first episode? I did. Oh, wow. How many? I don't know. <laughs> to me, that would be like the thing I'd be most terrified of is going over. And then as, as, assuming that if I did go over even once that I would be fired or, ne- or not fired, but at least never brought back to do another episode. But I guess it's not it's not that way necessarily. I would say that that was is definitely something that you should keep in mind. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. You right. Know, um, and perhaps... I should have had that more in mind, you know, when I was doing my first episode. But, you know, you talk to different people and either, you know, you're going to be the kind of director that, you know, always pleases the line producer or you're going to be the kind of director who pushes the envelope and, and fights for the, you know, that extra half an hour or whatever, because that shot or, you know, was was worth it in the end of the day or you needed that time for performance. And when I was starting out, you know, I don't know if I had the, you know, you don't necessarily have the right balance until you're, you know, you're, until you learn the right balance. And I think, you know, it, 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 it takes, I think it takes a little time to get your, your sea legs right. I, th- I think also you were being rewarded for your choices. Like you were getting into top festivals, you were getting the attention of distributors. So it's like your choices were, you know, regularly rewarded. And so you learn to trust your instincts. I mean, that's just from an outside perspective. That's how I'm reading this. Because I think a lot of artists don't have that pedigree. And so they don't know that they should be trusting their instincts. Yeah, I mean, I would say in television specifically, though, you know, your instincts do have, you have to play within a certain, you have certain limitations and you have, you know, you have a certain playpen. So if, you know, if a show's shooting style uh, doesn't leave room for too much experimentation, then all the time you took to set up this very special shot might be for naught in the end of the day because that's not the style of the show. Now you might be trying to make it very specific and authentic and like, you know, go against the grain, but you really do have to pick your battles. And it's great to have instincts and it's great to fight for what you want, but you do have to consider the TV schedule. So you've had this career in directing a television and uh, you know, you've got your second feature that's out now. Like, what have you learned in all this time of directing all these episodes of television and these two features? Like what knowledge would you want to pass on to like, you know, an upcoming director or somebody who's maybe made a couple shorts, but hasn't got their feature done yet, or maybe even made, made their first feature, but doesn't know what to do. And like, didn't have Sundance success, didn't get their movie released in 20 theaters. Like, what would you say to that person? I would say learn to enjoy the process itself. Because if you place all your joy in the result, then you'll never be happy. So, you know, learn that this is this is a this is a long journey. This is a marathon, not a not a race, not a sprint. And so, you know, just keep on plugging away. Put your attention on your craft, and 
you know, just know that you'll get to plateaus, you'll have up years and you'll have down years. You'll have great days and you'll have sad days. You'll, you know, you might never be asked to a show again and then you'll be asked to a show four or five times. Uh, you, you know, you're not always in control. You're not always, uh, you know, you don't always have the cards, you know, but if you try to find joy in the process itself, then you'll always be happy. We've had very few directors on the show who you could say are full-time filmmakers and only are directing narrative projects, whether it be TV or, or film. But over the last few years, like, is that you? Are you uh, only directing TV shows or working on your film and that's the only thing you're doing to pay the bills and provide for yourself? I've been, I've been very blessed on this journey so far. You know, I, when I was an actor, I, you know, I came out of, I came out of school and had to pay the bills by teaching artists work or substitute teaching in the New York City public school system or catering. I mean, I, you know, I had a whole bunch of odd jobs where I was acting only a portion of the time. Uh, when I came out of film school, because my thesis film was Gun Hill Road, it opened up the door, um, you know, at a time in my life where I just kept on placing one foot in front of the other. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean like that my career has gone exactly how I've wanted my career to go. But yes, I have been able to pay the bills, so to speak, um, by doing only by by only directing or writing uh, my own projects. Well, congratulations to that, man. I mean, that's that's like the dream right there is to just be able to do this kind of work full time and not have to do anything else. So, yeah, that's tip of my hat to you, sir. Right, thank you. You know, you mentioned that you're able to make decisions because you don't have a mortgage and, you know, you don't have a family currently. And there's there's some of these, you know, personal things um, that you've decided not to do, which I think is commendable. But I guess my question is, um, can you talk a little bit about that decision? Like, are you lonely? Is that a weird question to ask? Like, I'd love to hear how you feel about those priorities because you've achieved so much. And I just want to, I like personally, I just want to know that like that, I, I want to know you're happy too. That's all. Well, thank you. I mean, I guess happy, happy is relative, right? And it's, it's an emotion and emotions are fickle. So. <laughs> yeah. Like um, I have a family and I'm like, I have a kid and I'm not necessarily happy. Like, I'm, not, I'm not saying that like, if you have a kid, you'll be happy. I just want to know if like, if the sacrifices you have made, if you see them as sacrifices or if they were all um, strategic moves or how you see all these things combined together to make your career. Yeah, that's funny. I mean, I don't know if I've necessarily had a strategy. You know, I I fell in love with the arts when I was in college, and I've never turned back. I just, I, I, I had to fight my family in order to even pursue a career in the arts or pursue the arts itself, just even educate myself within the arts. And so, and, and I did that because... I, 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 there was a there was this voice inside me that said you're not going to be happy listening to other people and and how they want you to live your life you're only going to be happy if you listen to this little voice inside and that little voice inside said it doesn't matter how much money you make if you don't love what you do you're not going to be happy so you might as well risk it all and pursue what it is that you want to do 
I've always tried to remind myself of, 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 of that decision that I made when I was 19 years old to follow the voice of my heart. And sometimes it gets very, very cloudy and I can't hear it or it whispers or there's a lot of noise and I can't hear it anymore. And I, 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 I try to remind myself, but, it, but, but it's, but it's always there, you know? So, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I have, uh, foregone, you know, other, other, uh, you know, life events consciously. I got married after college and matter of fact is right when I was thinking of going back to film school I asked someone to marry me and so I got married during orientation week of film school which was a really really bad decision you know um, because (laughs) it's a tough time (laughs) yeah it was really it was just it wasn't intelligent but you don't you don't know until you do things like that you have you like you have to be willing to make mistakes and take risks and I was in love with this woman and um and she was in love with me and but but marriage and first year of graduate film school are just are not a good mix and film school won out and do I regret that decision no because I learned a lesson from it and it's made me who I am but it doesn't mean that I, you know, I made a decision not to, you know, pursue a family and all of these things. I, I, I very much wanted those things, but, you know, because circumstances were, you know, what they were. And I was basically neglected my new wife in the first year of grad school. I didn't have a wife anymore, <laughs> you know. So, um, <laughs> so, you know, it's been... You know, ever since that experience, I think I've been just a li- little bit more uh, uh, shy about um, about taking that plunge again, uh, because it's always been, uh, you know, a matter of like, well, what is this going to cost me or or, or or just, you know, what, what is it going to cost me uh, emotionally? Am I ready for this? Are they going to understand what I do? you know, the, the kind of, the, the travel that I do, the, 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 the time that I need, um, you know, it takes, it, it takes a certain person to understand it and, and, and go with the flow. And so it, I obviously had relationships. Yeah. I've just, I've been a little bit less gung ho because, um, of what happened to me in the past, but I, I hope to be, you know, just as, as, open and willing to take risks in, in, in those other aspects of my life that I have uh, been with a career. Um, it just is going to take a little bit more time, patience, and healing, to tell you the truth, um, in order to do that. The last thing I want to ask, I know this is like the third last, but um, <laughs> what's next, man? Like, Do you have another film you're working on? Are you going to be doing more television uh, in the future once like, we're able to go back to, to sets? Like, what, what are you looking for in the future? Uh, yeah, right now I'm working on another project. It's a biopic about um, a musician. I can't say too much more than that because uh, they haven't broke it yet. But yeah, I'm working on that now, and and we'll see. You know, we'll we'll see what the next steps are. But yeah, I'm I'm hoping to to you know continue with the with the narrative feature work um, uh, for the time being. 
if it's Prince, and I'm not saying you said it's Prince, and I have no intel that it would be Prince. No, I just no, think there no. should be a Prince movie. <laughs> um, oh, okay. So you've, you've said it's not. But I have an actor who looks just like Prince who's okay. been dying to make this movie. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll, we'll keep that in mind. But no, it is it is not Prince. Okay. <laughs> Good to know. Mm. Um, so Rashad, we, do, um, we end just like we start with just a rapid fire five questions. Can you talk briefly about the first film? You know, it could be something you made when you were 10, whatever it was. The first film you ever made, and how do you feel about it now? I guess the first film I made was when I was at grad school at NYU, and it was called Can Collector. And I feel pretty good about it. I got to shoot on film, and it was black and white, 16 millimeter, and the film was about four to five minutes. And... Uh, it's called the MOS project, so um, there was no dialogue, and yeah, we shot it all exterior in the Bronx, and yeah, it was a tough three-day shoot, but in the end of the day, you know, I have, I have a film that I was very proud of. What's the best filmmaking advice you ever received? In my first year, um, yeah, I chose NYU because obviously you know, uh, uh, the pedigree, but, but, uh, one of my favorite filmmakers in the world, Spike Lee, uh, attended NYU and he was a professor at NYU, um, and the artistic director when I went to school there and he taught a class for third years called, uh, directing master, uh, masterclass directing strategies. And as a first year student, I made sure that I shaped my schedule so that I had a hole in it so that I was able to audit that class as a first year. And I remember the first day of class, Spike Lee um, asked everyone in the class, and they, they were all these third years, how many of you want to direct films? And you know, pretty much all of the, the class put their hands in the air. And then he asked, how many of y'all have written your scripts? And only like two people put their hand in the air. And he oh. said, <laughs> and he said, you see, y'all are bullshitting. <laughs> that was the best advice. <laughs> Were you one of the ones who raised their hand? I did not know. I was a first year. I was just learning. <laughs> oh, I knew, I knew by the time that a third year came around, I better put my hand in the air. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a goal as a filmmaker? Like if you do X, you'll be satisfied. If you win an Oscar, if you make 10 films, do you have something you're trying to strive for uh, numerically or um, award-wise? To tell you the truth, Liz, I, I know that I will never be satisfied. And that's, that's the truth. Like that's something that I'm willing to accept about myself is that you can't... That, I'm, I, I try to remind myself and I try to give advice that I'm not a result-oriented person because you, you, know, you obviously have a goal and you work towards that goal, but then you achieve that goal and then what? You know, what I mean, I, I, I'm very happy that I was able to make the, the second film in the way that I did it. You know, we set a goal. We said two years from now, blah, blah, blah. This is what we want. And I was able to achieve that. And that's a great feeling. But then you're there and then you're like, oh, okay, and now what? There's always another goal. I try not to rest my happiness on a result. That doesn't mean that I don't have goals. 
you know, I, I want to continue to make narrative films that touch people and, and provoke thought, et cetera, et cetera. But I want to, I want to be satisfied with the process itself. And I, I just want to, I want to find joy in the struggle, in the day-to-day pounding my head against the wall uh, when my character wants to do this and I wanted him to do that. Like, that's where I want to find my joy. If you go back in time, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself? I would say relax, man. Uh, relax, man, and, 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 and enjoy, the, enjoy the ride and try to find balance. Because, you know, in the end of the day, you know, when you're, when, when you're working towards these goals, you can often forget to live normal lives and you can look back and and life has passed you by <laughs> you know you don't want to uh you know get to the end of this journey and say um that the reason why you missed out on life is because you were working hard uh you want to be able to say that you had a you had a balanced life you had people that loved you and that you loved and that you you know that you put work out in the world that you're proud of you want to be able to say it all right and so I would just say relax and enjoy the ride and and be sure to have some balance. Finally, is making movies hard? Making movies is a very, very difficult endeavor. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Awesome. Best answer ever. (laughs) Yep. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Rashad Ernesto Green for being on the show. And go out and watch Premature, which is available now on Hulu and to rent on Amazon. Um, You can check out our website at makingmoviesishard.com, where you can find links to the things we talked about on this episode. If you want to get in contact with us, you can send an email to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com, or you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at MMIHpodcast. We're also on Spotify now. We're also on uh, YouTube now. And one of our YouTube episodes has like 4,000 hits, which is crazy amazing and i love it i'm all be on twitter and instagram and liz where are you uh, mainly twitter at liz manichel and please if you like the show tell a friend help us get the word out spread the word people use the social medias tell people about us you can also leave a review on itunes or stitcher or comments on spotify i believe or anywhere else leave those comments say things about us that's very good thank you um and thank you yes please and thank you uh, and finally, thanks to our producers, Greg Holdsman and Joshua Sterling Bragg, editor Allison Stoney, and the whole Bloodstream Media team for making this episode possible. And we will talk to you guys next week. Woo! Yeah, and then I have another cat named Mike. But he's, uh, <laughs> his, his full name is Hey Big Mike. Um, sure, of course, of course. Yeah. But-